Forensic science, I think, itself is a misnomer. Um, most fields of forensics were developed in police labs or police um, departments for the purpose of helping police and prosecutors solve crimes. Prosecutors are going to migrate to a doctor who, you know, makes it easier for them to get convictions. The kind of set of skills it takes to persuade a jury are not only are they not consistent with the set of skills it takes to be a good scientist, they're often at odds with one another. You are listening to Bitcoin, blockchain, and the technologies of our future with Naomi Brockwell. I'm here at the Free Coast Festival in New Hampshire with Radley Balker, who's a journalist for the Washington Post and who received last year's Bastiat Award uh, through Reason Foundation. Thanks so much for chatting with me. My pleasure. So we just had a wonderful talk that you gave on the cruise that we went on and you gave us an overview of some of the things you talked about in your most recent book and you mainly focused on the issue of forensics. So I wanted you to just give me a little bit of an overview about how our idea and our conception of uh, forensic science can be problematic. Right, so forensic science, I think itself is a bit of a misnomer. Um, most fields of forensics that we know about, are, that we know commonly, uh, with the exception of DNA testing, but all the others uh, weren't really developed in scientific laboratories, weren't subjected to scientific in- inquiry or the scientific method, uh, but were developed in police labs or police um, departments for the purpose of helping police and prosecutors solve crimes. Uh, so most of them aren't really science. They're uh, sort of soft sciences or they're subjective sciences. They're um, there's a huge field of forensics called pattern matching, uh, the pattern matching disciplines in which an expert sort of looks at one piece of evidence and then looks at another piece of evidence and then just kind of eyeballs it and says either either it's a match or it isn't. And that's not a, a scientific method. It's not to say that there's that that kind of uh, analysis is useless, uh, but it definitely isn't science and it needs to be sort of relayed to jurors in a way that... Um, uh, that helps them understand the uh, the limits of that kind of analysis. What we see in criminal prosecution at the moment, it seems like this this very concrete case. You have these expert witnesses brought in. You have people come in and say, "Well, we've based this on forensic science," and um, generally, that's how a lot of people have been sent to jail. But what you've actually done through a lot of research into this area is is you've uncovered lots of cases where a lot of innocent people have been prosecuted on evidence that is quite frankly really flimsy and on these expert witnesses that have a lot of conflicts of interest, I guess you could say. Uh, you could or say that. I, I mean, I, I call them, I've called them frauds or hacks <laughs> or charlatans. <laughs> so we could call them conflicts of interest or call them complete outright frauds. So talk about uh, two of the people that you mainly focus your book on. All right, so the book focuses on uh, the two guys who kind of dominated the um, death investigation system in Mississippi for over 20 years. So one of them is Stephen Hain, who's the medical examiner, uh, who did thousands and thousands of autopsies in Mississippi, um, way, way more than he should have been doing or that any doctor could competently do. Uh, and for Hain, you know, he gave a lot of very questionable testimony, testimony that wasn't backed by science. Um, but a lot of the problem with him was just sort of strictly volume, that, that, that he was doing way more than anybody could possibly do, which led to mistakes. Um, there were cases where, you know, he uh, you know, carefully noted the, uh, the weight and appearance of a spleen in an inmate that had died of sepsis. Uh, unfortunately, the sp- inmate's spleen had been removed, you know, a few years earlier. Uh, so those kinds of, of mistakes. Um, his sidekick was this guy, Dr. Michael West, who was a dentist uh, in Mississippi. And he became sort of the leading expert in the country on bite mark analysis in the 1990s. And bite mark analysis, you know, 
you have the pattern matching fields of forensics, which are, are, are pretty dubious, and then bike mark expert bike mark analysis is dubious even within that field, and then West is dubious even within the field of bite mark experts. So we've got um, you know the, the sort of height of dubiousness was Dr. West, uh, but he was very well respected in the '90s. He was he testified in, in a dozen states. Um, not just on bite mark evidence, but he really expanded his repertoire to include all sorts of uh, what he called tool mark analysis. So he could claim that you know he could um, uh, match the indentations on a, a woman's purse to, um, or the the chain on a woman's purse, to the indentations in a suspect's hand, um, or uh, you know he could match a, a knife wound to a knife to the exclusion of all other knives on the planet. Um, and, and also we're talking about like weeks after the fact, him analyzing people's hands in prison and saying, yes, three weeks ago, I can tell that this exact butter knife was what was held in your hand right. by these indentations. Right. And, and, you know, there's no science to back it up. Uh, it was, you know, he claimed that only he could do this analysis and it couldn't really be replicated, which again, not scientific. And again, it was also pretty convenient because then you were just going to have to take his word for it in these cases. Um, but he, you know, uh, he put people in prison, he put people on death row. And in fact, to this day there are um, uh, well there's there are two people on death row uh, that whose convictions Michael West contributed to and there are five or six that uh, that Dr. Hain contributed to so um, there's really been no effort of Mississippi to kind of deal with this problem in a um, in the comprehensive way I think that it needs to be handled. So when I think of a court case I think of respectable policemen who are trying to capture bad people put them behind bars and so we're relying on these witness testimonies to back up evidence and uh, to make sure sure that we put the right people away. Now what's actually happening is there's some perverse incentive structures. So people who are so-called expert witnesses end up either being unqualified or being fraudulent and are sometimes even making a living by being a reliable witness for prosecutions um, so that they know that you know we can always call on this witness, they'll always be on our side, we can always get the outcome that we want. Tell me like some of the cases that you've witnessed uh, about this. Well, I mean, so in Mississippi, for example, on the topic of the book, um, you know, when there was a, suspic a suspicious death in Mississippi, the county coroner would take over the investigation. And then uh, usually the prosecutor or the local police uh, chief or sheriff would contract the body out to a private doctor for autopsy. Uh, well, the problem with that is that uh, when you have a private, when you're contracting out to a private doctor, if you're a prosecutor and you, you need the results to say to come back in a certain way in order to get a conviction and the doctor comes back and says that's not the way it happened or there's just not enough evidence for me to to you know uh, uh say that that's the way it happened ethically um you know if you're a corrupt prosecutor you're just going to sort of egregiously cut that doctor out and you're going to start using a doctor who gives you results you want but you know what we found and, and what i think is is more um, probably what happened is that um you know, I think even a conscientious prosecutor, I think, is going to be inclined to sort of go with somebody, as we all would, who makes our jobs easier, you know, makes our work easier. And uh, if you have a doctor who, who, you know, it doesn't have to be sort of a um, uh, blatantly corrupt, I think it can more just be uh, prosecutors are going to migrate to a doctor who, you know, makes it easier for them to get convictions. And that's uh, that's what Hain did. That's what West did. I mean, at one point, West even marketed uh, he and Hain to, to to prosecutors across Louisiana and Mississippi as uh, the the guys who can get you the I believe the wording was uh, the evidence you need to clinch a conviction. Um, and you know, the interesting thing is, Dr. West in particular uh, never was able to. Um, generate leads or generate new suspects for prosecutors. He was the guy that they brought in uh, when they already thought they knew who did it, but they just needed a little more evidence to get that person. And sure enough, he would always come in 
and uh, you know find uh, the guy that they wanted. Um, in fact, the two cases that drive the book, um, West uh, actually was brought in and the guy who we know was the actual killer uh, was one of the people who West took dental molds from and matched to the alleged bite marks that he found. They actually weren't even human bites. but uh, And he excluded that person as the source of those bites and excluded that person as the possible culprit uh, and ended up implicating the wrong person. You also spoke about a case where they, you know, dug up this body and it was just a, a skeleton and they had to ascertain whether or not that person had uh, been strangled. Yeah, so that was a case. There was a skeletonized body found in the woods, um, no soft tissue on the body whatsoever. Uh, and this is a Hain case, and Dr. Hain testified at trial that the, the, that the woman had been strangled to death. And if you talk to um, virtually any forensic pathologist, they'll tell you that there's no soft tissue on the body. Uh, there's no way to tell if somebody's been strangled. That's just not a, a, a conclusion that an ethical, ethical doctor could make. That's, it's crazy. When you put it like that and you say, like, this isn't possible to make this conviction, it seems so obvious. But what actually happens in courtrooms? I mean, these judges are not experts in this. They have no way of knowing themselves unless they've studied in the field or they have on hand all of these other sources, whether or not, um, you know, something is actually feasible or possible. So you end up just having these, the prosecution quite often, like uh, more, far more often than, than we realise, bringing in expert witnesses that support their cases and the judges just respecting the opinion, saying, oh, well, you're an expert, I'm not, I'm just going to believe this testimony. Right. And this is, the, this is a huge problem uh, in the U.S. We've made judges the gatekeepers of science in the courtroom, and judges are trained to be lawyers. They're trained to look at the world as a lawyer does, not as a scientist does. And so what we find in these cases where there are these hearings on the scientific validity of expert testimony, the judges... They, they, they are, their analysis reads like a, like a lawyer's analysis. They look at what other judges have done. They look at court, they look at precedent. They look at previous cases. Science doesn't work that way. Science, you know, if, if we want to know, if there's some new question in science that, that scientists want to explore. They don't look at what other scientists have already said. Uh, they do their own experiments. They add to the body of scientific knowledge. Our court system puts a premium on precedent, a premium on finality, a premium on consistency. Um, science is sort of always looking forward, uh, the legal system is always looking backward. Um, and so the two, science and law, have, have always been sort of at odds with each other. Uh, and we've never really figured out a good way to, to merge the two. And the problem really with forensics is that um, jurors want certainty. They want a, an expert witness who's going to say, this is how it happened, no question in my mind. And you know, a good scientist isn't going to speak in those kinds of absolute terms. A good scientist is going to talk about probabilities and margin for error. Um, and so it's actually the problem with judges just sort of letting everything in and letting our adversarial court system work it out is that the kind of set of skills it takes to persuade a jury are not only are they not consistent with the set of skills it takes to be a good scientist, they're often at odds with one another. Um, and so what we need is we need scientists to be deciding what good and bad expertise is, what, what science or what expert uh, testimony is allowed in the courtroom, uh, because letting judges make that determination hasn't worked out well at all. Now, there does seem to be something sort of insidious that does happen in courtrooms um, when you talk about cases like this. Like, what hope do you have for the future that we'll be able to change some of these practices and have, you know, more finality, maybe relying more on DNA evidence rather than forensics, for example? Well, I mean, DNA has helped. And in fact, you know, DNA is science. It was developed in the scientific community. It has been subject to scientific inquiry and the scientific method. Uh, and what DNA did was it showed us that all these other forensic disciplines that we thought were 
were uh, reliable aren't. And and DNA testing is why we're having this discussion right now. Um, with DNA showed us that we get it wrong a lot and that forensics experts have been, have been getting it wrong way too often uh, and much more often than we thought. And just lives have been ruined as a result. People, right. even when they've been in jail for 10 years and you find out like, oh, well, this person actually was innocent. They're loud out. It's uh, celebrated as a victory, but it's not a victory if a person has lost 10 years of their life. Correct. Um, and, you know, the problem too, DNA... The thing about DNA is it's DNA testing, it's not a panacea. It's a wake-up call, but it's not a panacea. The percentage of cases for which DNA is just positive of guilt is small. It's 10 to 15%. Um, but, you know, the, the problems that DNA testing exposed in those cases for which it is positive of guilt undoubtedly exist throughout the entire criminal justice system. And if we don't sort of learn the lesson that we learn from that small pool of cases and apply it to the entire criminal justice system, you know, at some point, DNA is going to be used in all of those cases for which it's positive. There's going to be DNA testing done early on. And so there are going to be no more, there won't be any more mistakes in those, those cases. There will continue to be mistakes in all the other cases, but there will never be another, uh, something as profound as DNA to give us another wake-up call in the future. So we'll continue to make the mistakes innocent people will continue to go to prison we just won't know about it and that's pretty scary it's, it's really scary but thank you so much for all of the work that you've done in researching this and uh, letting people know that this is happening and uh, really unveiling a lot of the bad actors out there thanks my pleasure for extra material and any links mentioned in this podcast please visit naomibrockwell.com if you'd like to watch the video version please visit Naomi Brockwell TV on YouTube BitChute or DTube Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future.